and welcome back here to the Under Pressure Podcast. We're finally here. We've spent the last 45 minutes fiddling on Zoom and a number of other ways to communicate, but we're finally ready. And joining me, like he always does, Jake Barker. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Matt, for the kind introduction. Uh, that's, that was the, the, stressful, the most stressful 45 minutes of my life then. Uh, oh, it's, been, it's been crazy. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, the, the stressfulness has been going with uh, the new uh, PGA game that I've been playing with as well. That's, that's put a bit of a stress on me this week as well too. So I've yeah, been enjoying that game as well. It's, a bit of, it's been a bit of a difficult show to actually prepare for because we actually haven't watched as much sport as we normally would because we've been too busy playing uh, PGA 2K21. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a brilliant game. So if, 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 if you don't have it yet, I'd definitely, I'd definitely get on board and uh, let us know how you go. It's very difficult would, to begin with. But. Yeah, and I would even add, we've got a few mates who we've been playing with over the last few days. Not necessarily interested in golf, but they are addicted to this game. Yeah, it's funny what it's funny what gaming actually does. Like, I, I don't play too much golf myself. I, I like I like to play it when when I get the chance, but I don't don't play it very often. But the game's awesome, and yeah, as you said, some of our mates are, are very very much into it. Yeah, and um, as someone that does love golf, uh, the opportunity to play at some of the uh, the great courses in America, such as uh, I've just had a complete name blank the Scott, uh, TPC Scottsdale and and uh, TPC Snowgrass and some of those big American courses. It's been absolutely fantastic to play. And the I don't know how the game's done it so well, but they've really captured the 16th at uh, Scottsdale, which for those who don't know, it's a, it's a stadium hole. It can hold about 50,000 people. So pretty much the crowd of Marvel Stadium on a little par three hole. And it's a bit like the Boxing Day at the Cricket, Bay 13. If you're hidden off there in the afternoon and, and it's hidden off there in the afternoon, the whole crowd is like Bay 13 at 4.30 in the afternoon, off their head drunk. The crowd on the game just get into you if you miss the green and boy, do they get behind you if you get it on the green. Yeah, no, it definitely shows in the game as well. That's for sure. They, they really, the crowd really, really get behind you. And, and then they're not too particularly happy when you miss the green either. So you wouldn't want to do that in real life. It's a bit, it was, it's a brutal and intimidating hole in, in the best of times. Uh, Tiger Woods has actually a hole, uh, got a hole in one there. So does the late Jared Lyle. But the one that I was going to talk about, both those hole in ones were phenomenal. And you look back at them, they really, held their place in time, but they put a robot on that hole once that's got the robot that's got the perfect golf swing and he holed it in and the crowd just went off a few years back. But we're going to leave PGA 2K21 there because quite frankly, we need to stop talking about it because that's all we've talked about all week. But we're going to start off with Joe Danaher, who is going to make his return to Essendon this round. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one for me. Uh, with with the with last year and him almost almost leaving to the Swans, and now him playing his first game in what is a delayed start, obviously, and towards the back end of the season, Essendon are struggling a little bit. 
maybe maybe they got a little bit desperate. I would have said they wouldn't wanted to use him at this point of the year. If he's adamant on leaving Essendon, then why would you play him and risk that injury? So I, I have. So I think Essendon have got two options here. They take the Jonathan Patton route, like he did at the end of last year, and they go, we know he's leaving. He's told us he's leaving. Yes, even though he is fit after a long injury, let's not give him another injury to ruin his trade value. I think Hawthorne, GWS, and Jonathan Patton did that really well last year. But my concern for Essendon, and I think this is the reason why they're playing him, is A, they need some results on the board if they want to play finals. But two, his trade value has gone down significantly since last year. Yeah, certainly, certainly has. I mean, Essendon were asking for quite a price at the end of last season, and I I only feel like that's gone down. From memory, I have a feeling it was one first rounder and a player, and Sydney were prepared to do two first rounders. Mm. If memory serves me right, I. There was there yeah. was some there the was top. something top of, that's just going off the top of my head, but that's what my gut feel is looking back. Yeah, it was it was something substantial. I don't know if it was exactly that, but it was something substantial that that Essendon weren't interested in at at all. I so remember obviously Essendon it wasn't were, enough. I remember clearly Essendon were very particular on the player aspect. But the other thing that I thought I would add is not only has his trade value gone down because he got um, has been injured, but the game has evolved this year. It's not, not really now a game for the, the mark key for the key mark forward. It's we haven't seen the key forwards dominate this year. We've obviously seen the King boys do really well as young developing players. We've seen Wiedemann develop. We've obviously seen McGovern, not not McGovern, Kennedy do well in later week. Don't know how I got those two mixed up. It's been a long day, trust me when I say that, and a stressful 45 minutes trying to get Zoom to work. But I can get why they're just trying to see if they can get him just to get that trade value back up a little bit, but it's a risk. And if he does re-injure any part of his body in this period, the chances of Essendon keeping him as zilch. Yeah, well, you're not you're not wrong there. That there is certainly risk and reward, and obviously, maybe that's what Essendon are trying to do. They're trying to they're trying to raise his value, like you said, and that's this is the best way of doing it. Hopefully, he has a few good games, can piece a couple together, and kick a few goals, maybe a couple of twos and threes the next couple of weeks. Have a break, and then attack the last couple of games. So, hopefully, that that only rises his stocks a bit for. For the end of the year because I think it, it, it's obvious that he, he is going to leave and a lot of people do think that already. Yeah and it's going to be an interesting period for Essendon because I just don't see their list. Um, Matty Lloyd was very critical on uh, Footy Classified on Monday night about Essendon and both Lloydo and Kane suggested that this list is not a premiership in premiership contention maybe they need to do a St Kilda style recruiting blitz at the end of the year or rebuild and I, I, I don't think Essendon could sell a rebuild to their supporters it's uh, been I think 16 years since their last finals win 
but they look dreadful at the moment and they're not fun to watch. And we did speak about Essendon at length, I think last week, or it may have been the week before, but they're just lacking something. And when you consider that they brought in Shield, Smith, Saad, Stringer, you, you really do expect more from Essendon. And I think the Danaher piece is going to play a very critical part with Essendon moving forward at the end of this season. Well, certainly, yeah, I, I can see that. And you can tell that they've gone gone heavy at the uh, free agency over, over the past few years. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also just going to flip the Joe Danaher case on its sides a bit and say, is Sydney the right fit? And I'm not saying it from a, is Joe the right man for Sydney? I think he is. But is Sydney the right place for Joe? Because can Sydney afford another injury-riddled key forward? They've already got Buddy on the sidelines. They've got... Oh, I had his name 30 seconds ago. I, I'm forgetting names. Um, Sam they've Reed. Nick, Sam Reed. They've got, they've got Nick Blakey as well. And they've got yep. uh, Tom McCartan as well. Yeah, it's just... I, I'm worried that they've got too many injury-riddled players on their list. Would it be better for another club? And I'm just going to say Brisbane to go after Danaher because Brisbane with Danaher, I know they've got a lot of good forwards in their stable, but would Brisbane or GWS, if Cameron was to leave? Yeah, Jeremy Cameron. I'm shocking with names tonight. Jeremy Cameron was to leave. Would they be a better club for Danaher given that Sydney probably can't afford another injury to a key forward? Yeah, well, I remember, yeah, we, we spoke about this at length last week and the only two clubs that have that have come to mind with Joe Danner or that have been put out there have been Sydney and Brisbane. But at the moment, I don't really see either of them being a good fit for him in either spot. Now, a bit controversial here, but I, I could see with the uh, performance of Tex Walker going down the drain, I could see a good fit at Adelaide. Great, great suggestion, but could Danaher survive another side dwindling down the bottom, given that he's been at Essendon his entire career and they've dwindled but also improved over time. He obviously played in that um, top-up year for Essendon where they did finish dead last. Could he see himself going to a club like that and be building something towards the future or does he need to go to a club in the now? I don't think there's any room for him to go into a club for the now, because all the now clubs have got those key forwards. Besides maybe a Collingwood, which would be very controversial, <laughs> and it'd be pretty hilarious to see him at Collingwood. But that's also another good fit as well. So Collingwood would be the, the only team that is vying for a final spot or, or a flag that I could see him going towards. Otherwise, you're looking at teams down the lower end of the ladder. There is so, one but, other club that you haven't brought up, and it's your own mob, Geelong. They've been linked to Cameron. They've obviously got Tom Hawkins, who has had a phenomenal year. But could they go the two big man option down in Geelong moving forward? Another club that's in the now. I could see the Geelong fit, given that you've been linked so much with Cameron. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, the Cameron link is there, and there is chances to play those two forwards, as you said. So they're obviously thinking about it. And we've got Big Sav down in the forward line as well. He's an up-and-coming, up-and-coming young young forward, young key forward. And then they also got 
they also signed Josh Jenkins at the end of last year. So I imagine in a regular season, we'd want to give him a bit of a chance as well. So I don't, there's not a just lot of fit down in that forward line for... I, I only say it because you've been linked to Cameron. I was just more just thinking of things. Maybe actually the only other club, that, and we, we did forget about this club, Fremantle, given that they're... They look set to move on Jesse Hogan. Also, also another another good option. So, but we tend to be looking at these teams that are down the end of the ladder, your Fremantles and 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 your Adelaide's. So, I think besides Collingwood, there's no real fit. I think you're a bit harsh on Fremantle, but I've I've been impressed with Fremantle. I think they're coming. I think they, I'm going to make my big my first big outlandish call for 2021. They will play finals next year, Fremantle. Yeah, I just meant in terms of this season yeah, that they're down yeah, at the bottom end of the line. Yeah, I know, but I'm just going to make that call. Before I start to make more controversial calls, we're going to change the path a little bit and talk a little bit about netball. There was a bit of uh, controversy that uh, happened in the netball, and I, I said something without fully understanding the rule last week, and you bit my head off. <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, <laughs> I was very strong on that on that on that message, but I, I do apologise for that if I was a, a little bit mean to you there, Matt. Even though I'm quite mean to you all the time, but we'll move on from that. So yes, in round six, I believe there's a game between my Sunshine Coast Lightning and the GWS Giants, who are also affiliated with the AFL team as well, uh, in a very very close and tight game. There was a couple of incidents in the game involving their goal defence, who goes by the name of uh, Christiana Manua. So she's been uh, playing for them since I think they were first introduced into the competition a few years ago. Anyway, the, the incident from the other night was that the umpires were really hot on the call of being late to the contest and then impacting a player after the contest that they felt was over. So she's come through, collected them after the, the contest was over. She got a call and obviously you get a warning at with your first one. And then the second one, what happened was after the second one, you get a two minute, two minute warning, a two minute, sorry, a two minutes off the court. At this point, you're not allowed to replace your player. And I don't think the, I don't think the team's, knew that you couldn't replace the player. So there was a bit of controversy there, which was, which was a little bit annoying. But then in, in the last quarter with about nine minutes to go, she'd been on for a quarter or so. And even she had the two warnings, then she got another, a third late caution. This is something that doesn't happen very often to one player three times in a game. This is why you haven't seen it. And with nine minutes to go, she did the same thing again and got sent off for the rest of the match with nine minutes left to play. And... All the, all the people were up in arms about, oh, that wasn't bad, that wasn't bad. But what I was trying to say is it's, it's not the severity of the actual thing that's taken place. It's the amount of times that she's done it. And that's what people didn't understand during, during the game at the time. They thought, oh, that core, why'd she get sent off for that? But it was because of the two previous times that she'd done it. She's in by no means a, a dirty player whatsoever. She's a fantastic up-and-coming player. For sure. It's just this particular game, she was late three times and and you don't you don't injured players and all the umpires are trying to do are protecting the players. There was a lot of backlash to the to the umpires that made these calls, which was a bit disappointing. 
the the Super Netball League actually made comments about the the calls itself and backed up their umpires. The umpires, they said, followed the correct procedure when managing and warning and suspending and ordering off players as, as the game provides. So there was a discussion at half time between the breaks, between the umpires and the captains, infringing that the first point is a player gets warned, the second a player gets two minutes and so on and so forth. All that was done. What they didn't do is, this is not what the umpires didn't do. What, what the Giants coach should have done now, and it's, it's interesting looking at this at hindsight, she probably shouldn't have put her back on. Because if you don't put her back on, you don't run the risk of losing a player and going down to six players. So in a way, it's, it, it, it's their fault a little bit, but they probably weren't aware that you were only allowed, that they'd only be allowed six players for the rest of the game. So there was a little bit of controversy surrounding, surrounding this over the week. And I was a bit disappointed to see how much backlash the umpires took, but they're back, in the, back into it. They've done a couple of games since then. And we haven't seen, haven't seen this since the Suncourt Super Netball started just here in Australia. So it was very, it was the first time that I reckon netball had really blown up on Twitter. There was people commenting everywhere. It was on Facebook, Instagram, it was everywhere. So and as, and as we said, it caught my eye and I don't normally talk to you about netball, but I chose that moment to do so and it backfired on me pretty spectacularly. Yeah, exactly right. And it just sparked a lot of, lot of chat and hopefully something that they've, that they'll, that they'll learn from both players and umpires, but the right thing was done in my opinion. And I'm not calling her a dirty player at all, but the umpires just had to follow the rules and that's all, that's all, all there was to it, really. And now we're going to do something a little bit different. Some some things you may have missed during the week. South Australia announced Jason Gillespie as their cricket coach. And Victoria have named Chris Rogers as their coach. And he has already identified that he would love to spend some time developing the Victorian players into becoming Australian cricketers, including the wonder boy, Will Pukowski. And also Formula One announced the final four races for their season with races in Turkey at Istanbul Park, which I am more excited about than any other race this year. Two races at Bahrain. Um, I think one is on the almost oval circuit we spoke about earlier, but I just haven't been able to find an article where it confirms that. And finishing off at Abu Dhabi at the Yas Marina circuit for the traditional season-ending race. In a 17-race calendar in half a year, made on the fly, is absolutely incredible, which means only four races were cancelled or not happening. Obviously, they're now at all different venues and multiple places aren't hosting a race this year, but we only lost four races. I think the Formula One management team deserves a huge pat on the bat for that. And Australia left, the Australian cricket team left our shores to England for a one-day NP20 series where they took 21 players, I believe, just so that if they did lose some players due to coronavirus, they had some backups, which makes sense. And I think they're playing five inter-club matches before they play England, which is the model that they took on prior to the Ashes where they had the Australia A-Australia match, which I think it was Brad Haddon's 11 versus Ryan Harris's 11. 
It was definitely a Brad Haddon 11 versus someone else. But, yeah, great move by Cricket Australia um, to do that. Now, Jake would like to talk about a sport that hasn't really changed this year, and that's the NRL. And we say they haven't changed because there's been the coaching massacre as we have come to expect from the NRL. Yeah, I know. It's been a bit, been a bit of a crazy season this season. You wouldn't think in a, in, a, in a season such as this that you would have now five NRL senior coaches sacked or have chosen to leave their job during this season. It started with Stephen Kearney on the 20th of June, the New Zealand Warriors coach. Then it was Dean Pay on July 14 from the Bulldogs. Paul Green from the Cowboys on the 20th. Paul McGregor a couple of weeks ago now on the 13th of August from the St. George Illawarra Dragons. And now it's Anthony Seabold. He's decided to, to, to walk out and go out on his own terms because I think he felt that he, he was on the way out after not getting a lot of support early on and the club wasn't behind him. Um, and with that, there was a payout figure agreed between both the Broncos and Seabolt. And I think it should also be pointed out that the NRL did instruct clubs not to make any stupid financial decisions. And even even with the, the restrictions on them spending money, they've still managed to sack five coaches, which is almost a third of coaches in the, in the competition have lost their job. And we thought, to be fair, in the AFL, there were five coaches changeovers last year. So it's, but the AFL's got two more teams. Actually, no, it is almost a third. Sorry, my maths is failing me as well today, among with many other things. But yeah, it's, it's just dramatic. But that was, you could say in the AFL, that was after a year of no coaches losing their jobs. So it was really two years worth of seconds over one where there were still several NRL sackings last year. Yeah, you're completely right. And it's really disappointing to see. It's, you wouldn't have thought in a season like this that you'd see five, five coaches lose their job. I know back in, back in the day when he was appointed, the, they were very, not disappointed, but they, were, they weren't pleased with, with the announcement. He was, he was appointed ahead of another guy called Kevin Walters, who's actually been linked to the job now, I don't know if that was as interim coach or as a coach for next season, but he was in line for the job when Seabold got it. And now that Seabold has, has up and left, it looks like uh, Kevin Walters is going to put his hand up again for the job. If memory says we were, that, was, is he the, was he the coach of the Cowboys of the, and the Maroons coach in State of Origin? Am I thinking of the right guy? I'm not 100% okay. sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm not, not 100% a, sure on that one. After this, I've also got a left-field candidate for the coach that I would like to suggest to you after you just say a bit on Kevin Walters. Oh, uh, yeah, no. Yeah, just continuing on with Anthony Seabold. So a couple of points on his way out. He's obviously talking to a lot of people, talking to the media. He blames COVID, obviously, for, for these players' dramatic focus lost during the season. So that's contributed to him in going out. He does want to coach again. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of lot of headlines about him in the next coming days. So hopefully teams don't look into that because there's so many jobs available. You may see him apply for a couple of the jobs going for next year. But funnily enough, he's also had really, really good support. He's had the likes of Australian cricket 
coach Justin Langer messaged him, England rugby coach Eddie Jones and former Wallabies cap, uh, coach Michael Checker messaged him for, for some good, just for just some nice messages of support. So that, that's good to see. He's obviously respected in the sport. So disappointed to see him go and add another coach to the NRL list. But you never know. We might see him in the future for sure if this uh, doesn't turn out to be a bit of a bad breakup between him and the Broncos. So just uh, confirming Kevin Walters has been the coach of the Queensland Maroons since 2016, succeeded over Mel Meninga, but he wasn't a coach of the Cowboys. I did get that bit wrong. But my left field solution suggestion, Jake, and I think you know where I'm going with this, is there's a, there's a 400-game superstar that could be leaving the Storm to the Broncos or a Queensland Cup or retiring at the end of the year. Could he do the player-coach role? If there's ever to be a player that could be a player coach, it's Cam Smith. Well, you know, you're certainly not wrong there. <laughs> it's certainly out of the blue, and I don't, I don't even know whether it's happened or it certainly hasn't happened for a very, very long time. But it'd be funny to see in this day and age, but Cameron Smith's the, the type of guy who can do anything, really. But on a personal level, don't see him leaving Melbourne. But it is funny to think about, though. Yeah, it, it does look like he will finish up at Melbourne at the end of the year. And it's just a matter of if he'll continue elsewhere. He's obviously been in the Queensland bubble and his family have moved with them and they are really adjusting back to the Queensland lifestyle where Cam Smith did come from. So having the family around them has sort of opened their eyes a bit. But there is a big achievement that happened this week, Jake, and it's an achievement that you been saying for years would happen and I've said I don't think he'll get there but Jimmy Anderson has joined the 600 club taking his 600th test wicket yes he's uh he did did it last night I was I was watching I was very very pleased to see took took a while took a while obviously the game turned out to be a bit of a a bit of a no-show and England ran out one nil series winners against against Pakistan but oh it was great to see I've been he's been one of Personally, he's been one of my favourite bowlers for ever ever since he ever since he started. In I think it was two thousand and two, he's been around for a long while, and now he's the first ever pace bowler to crack the six hundred wickets. He recently passed Glenn McGrath, who's who was top of the table at five sixty three. Now Jimmy has cracked this, the six hundred mark and could even possibly sneak into third ahead of Anil Kumble at six nineteen if he plays a couple more Test matches. Yeah, and in England, he, possibly. So. Yeah, he, he got asked, could he do 700? And his response was, why not? He, he's that type of guy. He's, he's, he's such a positive guy, such a positive bloke. And I'm so, so happy to see, see him get to that 600. He certainly deserves it. And I know his partner in crime, uh, Stuart Broad, isn't actually too far behind him on 515. But uh, I've absolutely loved what Jimmy Anderson's brought to the game of cricket. He's... He's a swing bowler. He's a natural number eleven, like myself in the in the first eleven. It's uh, it's it's fantastic to see, and I hope he continues for a bit longer. and And he and he does crack that seven hundred mark. Imagine if he plays until then; it would be probably another few years from now. So hopefully, he uh, keeps going for a little bit, and we can see some more Jimmy Anderson magic. Yeah, and I'm just gonna just add to the uh, the praise of Jimmy Anderson. He averages. Just o just under twenty seven with the ball, an economy rate of just uh, two point eight five. He's got a strike rate of fifty six. 
uh, career-best bowling figures of uh, 7 for 42. He's got 29 fifers and three 10-wicket matches. These are superb stats. Tremendous cricketer. And he, he has said he is planning to come to Australia in 2021-2022 to, to fight for another Ashes series. Now, I think it was last week, but it may have been the week before I had a bit of a thing as my under-pressure team of the week being the Collingwood Magpies. And Jake is actually doing the same this week, except it's not with the footy. It is with the netball. Yes. So this this week, it is the Collingwood Magpies of the Uncorp Super Netball and not, not the AFL as... Uh... Matt incorrectly looked at in our run sheet, but I'll, I'll forgive him for that. I'm having a lot of pot shots at Matt today. This is quite fun. But I'll move on from that. Yes, I'm, I'm taking aim at the Collingwood Magpies today. Unfortunately, the team has started pretty disappointing one and six from their first seven games. Obviously, the season's condensed and they're playing a lot of games in a lot in, in less time, but obviously so is everybody. But they haven't had the best start of the season and if they don't look to improve in the next couple of games, they could be they could be staring at possibly at their first wooden spoon, which they haven't received in the, the time that they've been in the Suncorp Super Nepal over the last four seasons now. They've struggled over the past few seasons as well, only managing one final series. And it's funny, they've had they've had players from the Aussie Diamonds through their squad. They've got a very good very good uh, Midcourt with the, the with the Brown sisters and Jeeva Mentor, one of the best goalkeepers of all time, playing for them now as well over the past couple of seasons. But they haven't managed to string two shooters in in their in their in their forward half for for the time that they've been in the league, and and it proves this year that they are last in goals scored, averaging across the season. They're, they're still playing really well on defence, not not conceding as many there, but. Putting, putting a score on the board is tending to be quite difficult for them at this point in time. They've got a couple of tough games coming up. They're, they're, they're now facing the Giants this coming weekend and they've come off a very close close win over the Firebirds last week, which they'll want to be backing up on the weekend. But they're certainly struggling in that forward end. They haven't been able to get both shooters shooting well and now with the two-point shot makes it a little bit harder. They have blooded a very good young goal attack now in Gabby Sinclair and she certainly can put them up, but there's only so much that she can do to keep the team in it. They're just struggling for that that shooter to hold at the post and, and, and get the ball and actually catch it and go up with it. So hopefully in the coming games they play, they're, they're a bit more solid down in that attacking end because certainly the, the mid-court is doing a lot of work and so so are the defence. It's now up to the attacking end to, to get the job done. Hopefully they can string a few wins together now. But that's all I have for the Collingwood Magpies this week. Hopefully I don't have to mention these guys again in the Under Pressure Team of the Week. And hopefully as both non-Collingwood footy supporters, we can talk about their footy team again later this year in this segment. But... From both of us here at Under Pressure, we thank you for listening to another episode and we can't wait to see you guys listen to us again in the future. And once again, until next time, goodbye and we will see you on the next. Bye.